Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. Climate change shifted the heat. Man-made climate change made record hot July three times more likely, new study finds. That can lead to over 2 billion hours of labor lost per year just in the United States. Extreme heat is also extremely costly for business. Plus, customers are facing another rate increase. It's the third this year. America's first new nuclear reactor in years finally starts operations in Georgia with higher costs for ratepayers. <laughs> All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. A new reactor at a new nuclear power plant in Georgia is now producing energy that could soon be used to power your home. It's an exciting step. Not the words that I would use to describe it. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, as delighted as I am about a new nuclear reactor in Georgia, (laughs) I guess we have to start with the nuclear reactor in the sky that is causing all kinds of problems across this earth. Sure, we can put it that way. About 80% of humanity experienced unusually hot temperatures during July. That was the hottest month in recorded history. And human-caused climate change was responsible for most of it. That's according to a new study by nonprofit data firm Climate Central. The researchers say more than 6.5 billion people experienced climate change-intensified extreme heat in July 2023, and man-made global warming made those extreme temperatures at least three times more likely. And they are still experiencing that heat right now. Indeed, even though it is winter in the southern hemisphere, parts of Chile hit a record 102 degrees this week. 102 degrees Fahrenheit in winter? Yes. Beijing became the newest area deluged by record-breaking rainfall, the remnants of Super Typhoon Doksuri, one of the most intense storms ever to hit China, dumped nearly two and a half feet of rain over five days in the Beijing region, an all-time high in at least 140 years of record-keeping. That triggered catastrophic flooding, crippling the city, killing at least 21 people, with dozens still missing. Climate scientists say global warming is turbocharging extreme rains around the world because a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. Extreme weather is extremely expensive. According to a new assessment by global reinsurance giant Munich Re, in just the first half of 2023, globally, disasters of all kinds caused more than $110 billion in economic losses. But the U.S. alone makes up more than a third of those disaster losses this year so far. A different study finds that the prolonged extreme heat has hit small business owners exceptionally hard. According to a new report by the small business payroll company Homebase, the heat forced many small businesses to close early in July due to fewer customers and to protect employees. That reduced paid working hours for employees. The company warned that extended dangerous temperatures may reshape consumer behavior. Wow, that would be something that a political party that uh, cares about small businesses would want to take action and do something about, right? We can now add oil refineries to the list of fossil fuel infrastructure struggling amid record-shattering heat. Refineries in Texas and Louisiana have been forced to cut back operations as a safety measure because they're not designed to operate above 95 degrees. That has helped spike gas prices around the world. They've reached their highest levels this year so far in the United States. So fossil fuels increase the heat. That shuts down the refineries, which raises the profits for the fossil fuel companies. Pretty neat, huh? Sweet deal. In other news, the Biden administration held an oil lease auction as required by law, this time in Nevada, but nobody came. Zero oil companies bid in the Bureau of Land Management's lease sale. The bust underscored calls from conservationists to focus on abundant renewable energy in the state and phase out oil production. Finally, electric utility Georgia Power began commercial operation at one of two large new nuclear reactors 
at the Vogel plant this week after years of delays, design and construction missteps, and massive cost overruns. The first newly built U.S. reactor to come online in decades, it was supposed to be up and running in 2016. But the cost of the reactors has more than doubled to more than $30 billion. While the new reactor will generate zero emissions electricity for an estimated half million homes and businesses, Georgia Power has asked for the third rate increase in a year on customers to pay for the cost overruns of Plant Vogel. So more dangerous and more expensive. Yeah. The plan is sound. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and website formerly known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Are you ready for that great atomic power? Will you rise and meet your savior in the air? Will you shout or will you cry when that fire small and high? Are you ready for that great atomic power? Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. So we can start to see the contours of this cultural framework of Christian nationalism when we start to talk about those things that are, are held in high regard. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Massachusetts. You know, it isn't just about the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, but now all these other things that you need to do and accept and believe if you're going to represent, again, quote-unquote, true Christianity. Dr. Andrew L. Whitehead is Associate Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, where he co-directs the Association of Religion Data Archives at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture. He is the co-author of the award-winning book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, and has written for the Washington Post, NBC News, Time, and Religion News Service. Andrew's latest book is coming out this month, and he's back with us today on State of Belief to talk about it. The title is American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. I really hope you're getting as much out of hearing this show as we get out of putting it together week after week. To get these important conversations in front of more people who need to hear them, we've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a Next Generation podcast I want to make sure you are subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. And this is very important. The podcast feed you are listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to The State of Belief at Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest, Dr. Andrew Whitehead was with us a few months ago and brought deep insights on what makes Christian nationalism seemingly irresistible to some Americans, as well as the grave risk it poses to our pluralistic society and to democracy itself. Now, with his much-anticipated new book about to be released on August 15th, he's back with us to discuss the threat this movement poses to American Christianity And the title of his new book is American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. Andrew, welcome back to State of Belief. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be back with you. I found this book irresistible, uh, as we said, because it's really speaking into, not in abstract, but speaking into Christianity. And Almost your audience are Christians who are wrestling with, you know, how do I remain a Christian, how to become a Christian, how I live out my Christian faith, uh, Mm. and how do I become and be a good American and at the same time feel like empowered and aware enough to reject Christian nationalism? 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm so glad to hear that you had that uh, experience in reading it because that really was the goal. Um, so in after over a decade of kind of my professional journey, studying Christian nationalism, defining it, doing surveys and, and writing that first book, um, really coming to realize the threat that it poses not only to multiple aspects of American society, democracy, those types of things, uh, but also to um, various ex expressions of the Christian faith, right? So if we're called uh, by Jesus to love our neighbors and break down dividing walls of hostility and to welcome the refugee and the immigrant and, and all these different things, what I was finding over and over is that embracing Christian nationalism, I think in many ways either stands in the way or or actively works against um, Christians being able to follow Jesus and his commands. And so this yeah. book was really the goal of, of writing to fellow Christians and not saying that here is, you know, this one sole expression you have to adopt, but that there are multiple expressions of the Christian faith that allow you to confront and oppose Christian nationalism, which is really focused on privileging one particular expression. And so yeah. throughout the book, I mean, one of, that in. kind of the pivotal line is I'm convinced that Christian nationalism makes us bad Christians. Yeah, definitely. That was the goal too, was, you know, being able to bring together my, my personal journey of, of growing up um, and then later wrestling with what I found to be Christian nationalism in my own faith and trying to disentangle um, what I was taught, right, of how we love Jesus and what Jesus commanded us to do. I was, was taught those things within congregations and within these social networks that embrace Christian nationalism too. Um, but then as I got older or just further on my journey, started to see, well, we're told to love Jesus, but then, you know, we're told to vote a particular way or support a particular policy that I felt like, well, this doesn't seem like we're loving our neighbors. And so trying to disentangle those. And so, yeah, with my personal journey, um, and I grew up in a large, you know, white evangelical mega church. It's where I learned to love the Bible, love Jesus, you know, it was a, a warm and inviting place um, through middle school and high school you know, I had trouble at home. And so this was a place that I felt accepted. Um, and so there were, there were good things about it, but then to just in that journey coming to terms with um, how I, you know, later found out or have come to believe that um, there are aspects of this idea of privileging Christianity in the public sphere um, over and above, um, you know, other expressions of Christianity or other religious traditions or, um, secular Americans um, that that I found, well, this moves us against what Jesus commanded. And so, yeah, that was real. And, and to be honest, too, as you said, still have family members and friends, you know, in those traditions and even question, you know, whether I'm still a Christian because I speak out against Christian nationalism. And to me, right. that really highlights what I'm trying to do in the book is just to show when these are so intertwined, um, it really becomes a problem because um, if if we're serving empire or America, right, there are going to be times where to be a faithful Christian means you have to be able to critique or move against um, what your country, no matter what it is, um, is is asking you to do. And so, yeah, exploring some of that has, you know, I've been on that journey for a while. And, and so that's reflected in this book as well. Yeah. It's interesting for me, you know, come, I came out of like, the liberal Protestant tradition, like that was my tradition. And so I, I come at this slightly differently. Um, the liberal Protestant tradition has its own foibles that it has to deal with, but it right. it's not the same as coming out of the white evangelical tradition. You know, there were like, I grew up with a woman pastor and thought right. that's just what Christians did. And, <laughs> you know, I never heard anything against gay people in, from the pulpit. Like, and, you yeah. know, and it was, you know, very sort of like, how do we, how do we do this thing? And Certainly the mm -hmm. black church and other expressions were always asking these questions that you ask in the book. You know, we all come from the at a different place. But one of the things that you just mentioned, which I think is so important, is that this is not just privileging Christians. It's mm -hmm. privileging a very particular expression of Christianity. And as part of that, they're very even most vehement to say that tradition does not represent the true Christianity. And now they're telling you that now that you've, you know, gone on this journey. You, you you left true Christianity behind. And that's also reflected in like 
when you have these questions about America and what America has done in the past, what we mm. need to do to get go into the future, you're like, well, that, that means you're not a true American. This idea yeah. of what is true, what is like, you know, it's one of my favorite parts of the book was your field guide to Christian nationalism, <laughs> which right, like yeah, I, yeah. I grew up in a, a family of birders. And oh, I kind of felt go. like, oh, you know, like, oh, there, there, you know, what, yeah, yeah. What, let's look at our book and like figure it out. So, I mean, not to not to, you know, not to objectify people or anything like that. But I do. I like the idea of field guide to Christian nationalism. This is yeah. all I'm going to mention your book title again so that people know what this is in and they can find it yeah. for themselves. It's American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. So. Why don't you lead us into a little bit of the field guide to Christian nationalism and, and what those identity identifiers really signify? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, part of it um, with Christian nationalism, you know, we we identify empirically what it is, define it. And I provide that in the book. And and again, like you said, highlighting this very particular expression of Christianity and um, what that means really when we get down to it is that it isn't just about these historical or theological or orthodox Christian beliefs like Jesus was divine and, you know, um, died on the cross and rose again. And those types of things are a part of it, but it isn't just that, right? What comes with it are all these other cultural beliefs and values that get added onto it. And it's this extra baggage that then we carry around. And so that is what we're really talking about with this, um, a particular expression of Christianity. And so we can start to see um, the, the contours of this cultural framework of Christian nationalism when we start to talk about those things that are, are held in high regard that really go above and beyond um, those, you know, it isn't just about the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, but now all these other things that you need to do and accept and believe if you're going to represent, again, quote unquote, true Christianity. Um, so, you know, a couple that that always stand out to me um, are, and this was the first one in the book. Um, when we when we have a an American flag at the front of the congregation, right? So I grew up in congregations where there's the American flag and the Christian flag right there. Um, and uh, in 2006, the National Congregation Study asked a nationally representative sample of congregations, "Do you have a flag in your main worship space?" And 60% of U.S. congregations at that time said, "Yes, they do." So this is not just you know one or two. This is thousands of congregations do this. Um, but I've had a, a pastor friend remark that if he ever wanted to anger half his congregation. He should either move or remove the U.S. flag from the front of the congregation. He said, then you're going to find out really quick, right, what this means to people. And so then that, I think, shows us um, when when people feel that certain, you know, symbols that are important to them are attacked. And in and, and the book, I call these idols, right? When they feel those are attacked, you can see them really start to react. And so then if it angers people that much, my next question is, well, then what does it mean to them, right? It means something very deep. And so we have to really start to unpack that because if you're a Christian from Australia or Ghana um, or um, any other country and you come to the U.S. and you see a flag there, um, it's going to be jarring because what is it doing in this space, right? If we're all Christians, but now this flag is given, um, you know, this kind of place of honor, and what does that mean to them? And so I think as American Christians, when we start to think through that and, and from the perspective of others, so the American flag at the front or celebrate America services every 4th of July, right? Not that um, there is, you know, not that the U.S. is, you know, just all evil and bad, um, but on the flip side, it's not just all good, right? And when we celebrate militarism and, and warfare and say that God's always been on our side, that should give us pause as Christians. So those are others. Um, but then I think the, the field guide really starts to lead into what I, throughout the book, then highlight and, and work out with these three idols of, of yeah. Christian nationalism. So power, yeah. fear, and violence. And, yeah. and when we start to think through the messages that we receive um, from others in our networks or from pastors um, or in what we're supposed to, um, you know, support policy wise, all of those things. I think then we start to see um, that feel God, it, it kind of helps bring those into sharper relief of, okay, yeah. this should give us pause. What is Jesus telling us to do? What is our tradition showing us versus what, what we're being told to do, yeah. you know, 
kind of to align yeah. with Christian nationalism. I, one of the one of the nice ways that you outlined the book is uh, using uh, Jesus's um, sayings in mm. juxtaposition with those three idols that you highlight, right. like turn the other cheek and the quest for power and be not afraid and and yet doubling down on fear and lay down your swords and yet, you know, the turn towards violence. So it's cleverly done, but it also makes a really profound point. So let's talk first about quest for power. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the quest for power, I think, really is kind of the central idol of Christian nationalism. It really comes down to this. And power is the ability to get others to do what you want despite resistance. Um, And so we have to be really clear because it isn't just that Christians should totally try to stay away from all power, um, that they shouldn't exercise it, that all power is evil, that type of thing. Um, because as we look to our even really recent past, um, the key is not just power, but self-interested power. Is it the execution of power that only benefits a particular group, the us, quote unquote, right? Um, And so when we're talking about self-interested power, we can see really clearly how Christian nationalism really is focused on gaining, maintaining um, access to, to power that only benefits a particular group at the expense of other groups, outgroups. And not only that, but to limit who has access to the democratic process, right? Who has the ability to even weigh in on what we're going to do collectively. And so these groups that embrace Christian nationalism and, and this cultural framework um, are have been for decades and are still saying, you know, we need to limit who can vote and how how easily they can vote. So we have self-interested power and the desire to maintain and and keep that privileged access to the the right and the ability to say this is the way things are going to be. Um, But then fear is a primary tool of Christian nationalism to then motivate action, right? And especially to um, kind of create this this vision of a national identity of who we are, um, but really it's focused on maintaining that privileged access to self-interested power, right? And so to do that, it has to draw these sharp lines between us versus them, Um, And so fear Mm. is used to distinguish that. We can see that. Um, So those who are committed to a quote unquote Christian nation, you need to know who we are and what we're about. And you need to know who they are and what they're coming for. And that is for you, right? For your privileged access to power or the way that you want to see the world. Um, And so, you know, social science and, and history show us over and over that stoking a sense of threat, um, really makes in-groups pull together really tightly. Um, And so again, this is key to developing and maintaining this this framework of Christian nationalism. And so Christians um, are told over and over um, to essentially fear what might happen to them um, if they're a part of a true pluralistic democratic society, if they allow others to also weigh in on how the world should look and what should happen. Um, and so we have a, you know, a quip in sociology that equality feels like discrimination when you're accustomed to privilege. And so mm. for Christians, any call to say, hey, we should share the ability to participate, they feel as though they're losing something when really they're losing privilege, right? The unquestioned kind of center of the culture that they imagine themselves as. Um to now become a seat at the table, right? You're no longer the head of the table and occupying almost every seat, but now you have a seat. And so you have to work differently then. You have to work with and compromise. And those are hard, but um, allowing Christians or or hopefully providing American Christians um, expressions of Christianity that that allow them to to not fear um, loss of privilege, but now to see themselves as part of a, a community, right? An intertwined right. community with people different than them. And how can we move out and and represent the gospel, right? As as we could talk about, um, of of seeking God's kingdom and the flourishing of all people here and now. Um, how can we be a part of that work? And so when when folks hear a message, I think one way to think about it is what does this move me toward? Does it move me towards fear of the other or the world, or does it move me toward compassion to others? Mm. Right. And so I mm-hmm. think there where we can start to break down this idol of fear yeah. that Christian nationalism demands of us. We'll take another break now and be back with more of this conversation with author Andrew Whitehead. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief 
anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you're subscribed to the Next Generation podcast because the feed you're listening to today will be discontinued soon. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, what insurance hassles do physical therapists and their patients face under our current healthcare system? And why are patient costs all over the place? To find out, we spoke to Ariel Wynn, a physical therapist and board-certified pelvic health clinical specialist in Chicago. You need to see your physical therapist at least once a week a lot of times. Sometimes people are even seeing them two or three times a week to get stronger, to get the care that they need, to get the mobilizations that they need. So if you're paying your $30 copay three times a week, that's a lot of money for a lot of people. And that out-of-pocket cost doesn't even count, have you met your deductible? Do you have co-insurance? What's your out-of-pocket maximum? And so a lot of times people are just intimidated by this really giant number. So we'll see people who we're seeing in December completely drop off in January when their deductible resets because they just can't afford it. And then there's also the more mundane issues of childcare, transportation. Do I need to take time off work with all of these multiple appointments? So even though physical therapy is conservative and effective, and a lot of times that's what people want from their healthcare team, they don't want to jump to surgery and pharmaceuticals and imaging. They want this type of care. It's just that it's really hard to access unless you're somebody who has parental leave, sick time, a, a nest egg, maybe a health savings account. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Whack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. We have Scott Paul in the house. He's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. You said, quote, only a fraction of the investments and new incentives have been fully implemented. Special interests are seeking to weaken Biden's Made in America requirements. The data shows nearshoring and friendshoring may crowd out our efforts mm. to bring production all the way back to the United States. I'm not familiar with nearshoring and friendshoring. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, Leslie. And so there's a lot of terminology here that most people don't have to think about and shouldn't think about, but but it's important to understand. Reshoring's bringing work that had once left the United States back here all the way. Friendshoring is basically taking it out of China and putting it in another country that we have good relationships with, um, but it could be Japan, Korea, Taiwan, um, Malaysia, some other Asia country, but you know, that's in a that's in an alliance with the United States. Nearshoring would be bringing it back to a country like Mexico that that is very close to the United States and very economically integrated mm. with the United States because of the free trade agreement that we have uh, with Mexico. And so certainly there is a role for all of that. And even me, who my job is to to advocate for American, manufacturing. I'm also a realist. I understand it's not all going to come back. It can all come back for a lot of different reasons, uh, because we consume a lot of stuff. I mean, we don't have enough people here, actually, to make everything that we consume <laughs> right, sure, for yeah. ourselves. But, but you know, what, what I'm trying to say through all of that is that when possible, the first choice destination should be bringing it back to the United States. And if that's not feasible for whatever reason, then yeah, sure. It can be in Mexico. It could be in an allied country. Uh, but that shouldn't be like the default. It's like I'd, I'd much rather see the work come back back to the United States if it's possible to do that. And so, you know, some big corporations are saying, well, 
you know, let's find workers in another country that we can exploit or also look to keep down our costs a little bit uh, and, and make a lot of money and sell back into the American market, even if it's not from China. And again, there's some circumstances where that's going to happen. But I think that we need to maximize the amount of pressure, maximize the amount of incentives that we're putting on companies to bring jobs all the way back to the United States of America whenever it is possible to do that. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. My guest is Christian nationalism expert, Dr. Andrew Whitehead. His new book coming out August 15th is American Idolatry. One of the things you're doing is, again, repeatedly juxtapositioning how Jesus approached his time, which was Mm -hmm. Jesus had no power, you know, in the traditional sense of the power. And Mm -hmm. Jesus said, fear not. You know, a true faithful person would not be operate out of fear. Um, but would operate out of love. And so I think that's really important. Violence is one of the ones that when I mention that to people I'm talking to, they all of a sudden are like, oh, right, yeah. of course, we've seen it, we know it. But, um, but it's interesting that it's such an identifier of, of the willingness to, be, uh, to use means that we feel that are undemocratic to get their goals. Talk, talk a little bit about that and its juxtaposition with the way Jesus worked. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, as we, we look at self-interested power and this desire to, to maintain access to it, this fear of, of losing it, um, violence then is kind of used in service of defending those perceived threats to the group, the us versus the them. And it always revolves around protecting power. Um, so when we idolize power and fear, violence is a natural response because again, we're, we're trying to take control of a situation to protect the quote unquote us. So when we succumb to that fear of losing something that we feel is ours, um, that will never recover, um, throughout history, we see over and over Christians and others. It isn't as though Christianity is the only, you know, world religion that has had this problem, but many do. But um, Christians certainly aren't outside the the trend here that they will use power and the threat of power to achieve those ends. And so, you know, violence is a tough one because there's interpersonal level, individual level violence, and then there's collective violence that. You know, no matter who we are as Americans, we're more or less implicated in those systems because um, we live here and, you know, America goes to war or does things that, you know, we may not as citizens prefer, but it's still happening, right? And so trying to make sense of those different levels of violence. But what I find and and try to lay out in the book, too, is um, that Christian nationalism collapses those right? That kind of systemic or um, at the cultural level versus individual, that it then just views all violence as essentially a right um, of any individual to maintain control within their situation, however they might see it. And so whether we're, you know, in our suburban neighborhood or whether we're going to war, um, all those things we can we can start to see when we embrace Christian nationalism, it's we start to see it as God ordained and a right, um, because we're drawing on biblical narratives and we're using those, you know, in a particular way to support the way that we see the world, um, and so then that becomes uh, really dangerous. And so, you know, when you know one line in the book, when Jesus came, um, the only blood he shed was his own, right? He wasn't shedding the blood of anybody else. Um, and so as Christians, and I think, you know, I'm sure, Paul, you could, um, you would agree with me here is that many times, I think even for myself, the radical, I think I, I undersell the radical nature of Jesus' call, even today, right? What he calls us to, it's scary, right? And it is radical and it is outside the norm. And I don't know that we really, I know I don't, and maybe it'll take my entire life and maybe not even then, but to really see how radical that call is of of not just you know being a doormat but sacrificing in such a way that we resist the the principalities and powers that that push for violence and so you know even within that chapter 
um, understanding it isn't just about like just war versus pacifism, but that even within the nonviolent tradition, um, there are many streams, right? And, and ways that Christians are thinking about um, how we live out a peace ethic. Um, and so just inviting, you know, hopefully readers in the American Christian church to, to take a beat, take a step back, right? From just saying like, hey, David and Goliath and Jericho and like Christians are called to just, you know, go and, and take control, um, but to really wrestle with, well, how do we live out faithfully in this context and, mm. and try to oppose those systems of, of violence and death that happen at the individual level, but also collectively that, yeah. that we're implicated in? Yeah, I, I, I think this is one of the things that I, I think is really important to talk about is the discipline mm. that it takes um, to, to avoid violence um, mm. and to avoid yeah. like the quest for power. And, and that's actually, I think, a role that congregations can play yeah. is talking explicitly about that. And, and yeah. you know, congregations can be a place where, you know, that can resist, I think, Christian nationalism in a way that's really important to, to talk about. And, you know, I had a chance to interview John Lewis when he was alive and, you know, to talk about like the training that went into nonviolence resistance. Yeah. Incredible. They didn't just walk out there and, and it was like, oh, okay, well, I can do this. It's like, no, you actually have to go through this and you can't show up to a protest without having done the spiritual discipline of understanding mm -hmm. what you're doing when you're showing up in a nonviolent way, especially when you want to change systems in power. And so what do we do? Because mm -hmm. like this is happening, this is happening, but it's also unpopular still. Mm -hmm. And we mm -hmm. have to own that. Like, we have to say, this is not actually representative of the will of the people. It's the will of some people. Yeah. And so, like, not give them the, 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 you know, the luxury of the idea that this is, this is what America needs to be, because it's not. So, you know, that's one thing. But then how do, you know, I just, I, I love your book, but I'm worried, like, will it change anybody's mind? How do we, how do we actually you know, invite people to say, I see what you're doing. I see why you're doing it. There is another way. And I, I think I see that's what you're trying to do. I'm just wondering, have you seen success in mm -hmm. this? Have you seen people kind of go, okay, this is not the direction I want to go in. Or, yeah. you know, I, I would love to hear some, I'd love to hear some, you know, success stories and then to be able to understand why they were successful and, yeah. and what we can learn from that. Yeah, definitely. No, I think, you know, in the book too, try to provide some examples of folks who in their lives are taking steps to confront and oppose it, right? So whether it's um, getting involved in supporting groups or being a part of a group that defend religious freedom and, and religious liberty and the right to vote, right? That is something that is pushing against Christian nationalism or a congregation that took up um, a collection and turned it over to um, a you know a group of of minority brothers and sisters in their community and and just allowed them to disperse those funds as a way of moving against this history of um, you know privilege that white Americans had because black Americans were not allowed to in many ways you know own homes at the same rate or even get higher education those types of things um, or another person who um, connected with refugees in her community and just helped them know where the grocery store is, help them know where the library is, um, help them with um, driver's manual training, right? And, and seeing, you know, aligning ourselves with the marginalized and being able to see the world from their perspective and understand where that system is crushing them. And then doing what is needed in that moment um, to advocate for them. And, you know, I was born by historical accident in this country, um, as a white man, um, and then grew up in a Christian area. And so this country has generally worked for me in every way. The only way that I could see how it doesn't is to listen to those stories of those um, who are not like me, and then to move hopefully alongside them. And so, you know, I think those are some of the stories and success stories that we see happening even now. Um, and, and one of the things that I, you know, gives me hope is that there's unlimited creativity with within congregations and people that, you know, are hearing this call, are seeing that history, are seeing that social science, are understanding what this is about and what what moves are being made against um, 
you know, others in this country at the benefit of the us. And, and so I'm excited to see too, that creativity be unleashed and and how we can confront and oppose it. Cause I know that I, you know, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I hope to give at least a viewpoint of what this is and expressions that move against it. And now let's continue to do that together. So I think in community, and as you said, in congregations, this is key. And, and I do see, um, especially for younger folks, as they read, you know, our first book, Taking America Back for God, and hopefully they read this one. When I talk with college students, um, they see it very clearly. They know exactly yeah. what's going on. And um, if I had had, you know, some of these, you know, our books, but especially other books too that have come out uh, recently, if I had had those 20 years ago, I think, wow, you know, where would I be on my journey even today? So I think that gives mm-hmm. us hope too. And and those are some of the the successes of of the consistent pushback of various groups like Interfaith Alliance, Americans United, Baptist Joint Committee. Um, these groups are providing Americans an entry point into not only understanding the the difficulties we face, the threats we face, but then how to confront, pose, and move against those going forward. And so I think- right. Those are success stories as well. Yeah, I appreciate that, and and we certainly, you know, this this feels very urgent to us, and and uh, and a major focus. Okay, I'm gonna like let's do a little role play. I'm a member of your family, okay, uh, who or a mem- or a member of your former congregation, and mm. I am like in this. I am I am part of like I I'm I'm on board with the Christian nationalism uh, train, mm-hmm. uh, and I read your book, and I'm like. Andrew, what are you talking about? How do you talk to me in such mm. a way that might, you know, because I, I do think that's like, you know, I mean, it, it, there's lots of ways to confront, you know, movements like this. And many of them are are really recognizing that we have to build power in such a way to use it to protect democracy uh, and not just for our self-interest. But there's another way that's person to person and yeah. people do change. And people do grow. What would be a way that you would want to have a conversation with someone who is really immersed in this culture? Yeah, I think the big thing for me is is um, always talking about it in terms of the ideology itself, and not trying to label anybody. Right? I, I in this book and our other work, don't try to label anybody a Christian nationalist because I think at that point it becomes just a part of the identity they feel personally attacked. Um, but to talk about the the framework itself and the ideas that surround it. And so a lot of times I know on my own personal journey, the the cracks, you know, in the facade start to appear um, with questions that get asked. And so for me, you know, questions that really started to influence me were, um, you know, if America was founded as a Christian nation, which that narrative is central, obviously, to Christian nationalism, um, if it was founded as a Christian nation, then how could it um, have blessed this idea that we could enslave um, whole groups of people or commit genocide and not only kill, but push the people that were here before us off land that they had before us, right? So I don't see anything in Jesus' teaching that align with that. So how could a Christian nation do that? Or our founding fathers, if they were really intent on creating a Christian nation, um, why would it have been um, you know, formulated in such a way that uh, women, uh, minorities, basically anybody except white landowning men could fully participate in this country? Because that's where it started. So if we're talking about Christian values, that doesn't seem very Christ-like to me. So help me understand that. Help explain that to me. Um, and so I think using some of those questions and listening too, because um, even listening to some leaders within um, groups and organizations that are committed to Christian nationalism, um, you know, there's times where I, I listen to you know a full podcast of one of them. And while I don't agree with some of the presuppositions they have or, you know, policies they want to see come to the fore, it does help me empathize with some of those same things that I feel, which is, you know, I, 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 I hope for certain things, you know, I want to see, um, you know, people flourish. I think some of those folks 
make the us way too small, you know, and so I want to push back there. But but even empathizing and listening to folks, I think, is key because at at the root, I think it is this fear of losing something, something's being taken away. And those are real fears. They're they're feeling real feelings, I should say. Now, are they based in reality? Generally not, right? So if they are they don't want to they want to shut down all immigration because they feel like immigrants are taking jobs and increased crime. Um, I get that they're feeling a real feeling. But when we look at the data, immigrants don't increase crime and um, they don't take away jobs. And so if we can start to then have a conversation and think about, well, is this actually rooted in um, empirical evidence? In reality, we can hopefully then start to to lower the temperature and then to move forward that, hey, maybe those who are telling you to fear this group aren't really telling you the truth or serving you in a particular way. Or if Christ says, this is how we should respond to those in need, um, you know, how do, how do these particular policies align with that? And so mm -hmm. I think those are the ways that I do have conversations with family members or friends that I would encourage going forward. And then there are times where you may um, just have to not have that conversation for a while. You know, you have to protect yourself too, where there are times where right. it's, it's just not going to be fruitful. And, and I know yeah. pretty quickly in a conversation, if this is not going to go anywhere. And so, um, at that point, I just have to trust that I need to serve as a credible witness against maybe what they think is true and allow them time to be on their journey. I would rather them move yeah. along on the journey but I was on a journey and it took years and it might take right. them years. And so right. um, I think those are things just to keep in mind that I try to think of too. Curious how, you know, this book comes out as we are really beginning to ramp up uh, mm -hmm. 2024 election, which is, I have to say, like Christian nationalism does not seem like a sideshow to it. Um, right. It feels very, very... Um, in, you know, really a, a one of the themes of the 2024 presidential election um, that may not be always explicitly said, but it will, you know, certainly many of the, the leading candidates in the on the Republican side, you know, seem to be speaking in ways that um, talk that are, you know, my, my field guide uh, antennae go very like whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, yep. So how, I'm curious what how you you know can imagine the 2024 election and Christian nationalism playing out in that sphere. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And 2022 was really interesting and instructive as well, where the candidates who um, would would lean on some of the the Christian nationalism rhetoric. Right, kind of those age-old kind of a Christian nation. We need to get back to our values, and when when things were working great in this country, all of those things that tended to work. For those um, candidates who just ran explicitly, whole you know, full steam ahead on Christian nationalism rhetoric, like Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania is one example. They didn't do as well, and so I think it it really is kind of a, a seasoning rather than the main course when we're looking at politics, that people want it to be there and be around and kind of in the air. Um, but I think for the moderates and independents, if it's too much, I think it tends to turn them off. And those are the folks that can turn elections. And we find in, in our research as well that um, independents and moderates who embrace Christian nationalism really strongly, um, Christian nationalism really works strongly for them, right? So it it doesn't change much with Republicans because they're going to vote Republican if they self-identify. But if you identify as an independent or moderate, the degree to which you embrace Christian nationalism really tells me a lot about what you're going to do, right? It really pulls them into that Republican fold um, and the same on the other side as well. And so um, I think as we look forward in the election, it's going to be um, it's going to be there. It has been for decades. You know, it's been a part of our body politic for so long that it isn't going anywhere. And I think um, to the extent that it um, is highlighted alongside these other policies that are part of, of, of the Republican Party, you're going to see you're going to hear it and see it there. And that's that's what will pull in, you know, moderates independence is kind of the judicious use of this rhetoric, this ideology um, to kind of underscore 
that this is a battle of good and evil. And obviously we're on the side of good and we want to break America back to what God wants for it. All of those things, I think, really tend to work strongly as, as kind of political tools, right, in the toolkit. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, I, I like the seasoning rather than the main course. I think that's right. I, I hadn't quite put that together. Um, one of the things that I, I I definitely want you to be able to talk about that is very strong in your book is that the, there is a racial underpinning of Christian nationalism. Um, it doesn't mean that all Christian nationalism, people who embrace Christian nationalism are white, but there is a white supremacy um, worldview that accompanies it. And so can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So one thing we find over and over empirically is when we ask this you know collection of questions that we use to measure Christian nationalism, none of them me- uh, mention race at all, right? They ask, um, how strongly you agree if uh, Christianity should be privileged in the U.S. or if if the government should declare the U.S. a Christian nation or if um, you know God has a special plan for the United States. So none of them mention race. But when we put those questions together and then we ask questions about race, like your level of comfort with interracial marriage or police violence towards Black Americans, what we find over and over is that how you answer the Christian nationalism questions is incredibly strongly associated with your views towards race and generally in a direction where um, it is in a more racist direction where you're going to be more likely to agree that uh, police violence towards black Americans is because black Americans are inherently more violent, right? Or that you're, you're, more likely to be very uncomfortable with interracial marriage, these types of questions. And so what we find with that is that religion in the U.S., especially Christianity and and Christian nationalism, has been fundamentally racialized from the beginning. And by that, we mean that it aligns with the structuring of society such that the benefits and privileges of society tend to flow to one group, and that has historically been white Americans. And so it's about whiteness, not necessarily white people, because you could have religious minorities or racial and ethnic minorities who embrace Christian nationalism. um, And so they would still, through embracing that, support this broader um, structuring of society that tends to benefit a particular group. And there's a number of different reasons, and, and I highlight this in the book as well, as to why it's important to call it white Christian nationalism. And really quickly, one of the reasons is why the, the narrative of um, racial difference right, um, in this country happened alongside um, creation of theologies right, that allowed Christians that came here to enslave you know, black skin folk and to um, push off the land or commit violence toward brown skin folk because they were heathen and bad, whereas white and European and Christian was good. And so those categories happened very early on. And then the creation and maintenance of the narrative of the U.S. as a Christian nation primarily happened in and was maintained by white Christian institutions, whether it's mainline Protestantism, because they play a role historically for sure in that. So it's not as though they're off the hook um, within white evangelical um, denominations and seminaries, um, white Catholicism as well. And so in those um, traditions um, and white Christian traditions, that's where we see this narrative really taking um, hold. And so, again, it isn't as though it's just white people holding Christian nationalism, but white Christian nationalism is focused on creating a hierarchy in society where the benefits flow to one group and it tends to be white natural born citizens. Yeah. Yeah. It's just important to mention. We, you know, we like to end the show with what gives you hope because we often talk about weighty things on this, on this show. And, uh, you know, but we're also, we also <clears throat> like to invite spiritual traditions and, and ethical traditions that that do, um, you know, offer hope to people. So so what's giving you hope today? Yeah. So, you know, honestly, what's giving me hope and um, this is a theme that I, you know, rely on, too, in the book where um, reading Kelly Brown Douglas's um, recent book 
and you know where she's kind of writing at the end writing to her son and and she's reflecting on um how for decades and even centuries um you know africans who were originally enslaved or even through jim crow they continued to push for a society that lived up to kind of the the hope of of America, where it was, you know, all men, and they were literally meaning men at that point, but let's say all people are created equal, um, and this idea of, of flourishing, where these, these people were, were doing this hard work, and they never knew if they would personally benefit from it, but they still committed to it. And so for me, um, I've never obviously been in a situation like that. And there were times where I was feeling like, well, you know, I'm sure you have days like this too. Like, is anything that I'm doing actually helping? <laughs> because you hope it is, but it it can be a slog some days because it just seems so constant. But then I was thinking about her book and about um, African-Americans involved in the struggle for their own rights. And for those that lived and died under slavery or even within Jim Crow, still maintaining faithfulness and pushing for a better future um, and essentially planting those seeds that they may or may not see bloom, um, that was incredible to me. And so I, I kind of draw on them for, um, for hope and for an example of moving forward. That, um, you know, the the structures and and social systems that crush and oppress, they're always going to be with us. We see it through the story of Scripture and the Christian tradition. We see it throughout history. They're always going to be there. And yet, like we can and should be daily doing what we can in our organizations or personally um, to make room for flourishing, to, to push the line as far as we can and knowing that we can't do it all, but that we can be a part of that broader work. Um, I think that helps release me in, in ways, you know, it helped me kind of release myself from any sort of ultimate um, responsibility for this, but that it just freed me to be creative and go and do um, to hopefully make some sort of impact in making room for others that they might flourish as well. And so, yeah, that would be my hope for for the work you do, for your organization, for others that want to see um, want to see something look different than we've had in the past. And so, yeah, I think that's that's how I'd answer that question right now. Dr. Andrew L. Whitehead is Associate Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, where he co-directs the Association of Religion Data Archives at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture. He is the co-author of the award-winning book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. His latest book, American Idolatry, how Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church is due out August 15th and is available for pre-order right now. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. This is very important. As part of our new partnership with Religion News Service for distribution and expansion of this show, the podcast feed you are listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief on the air. I hope you consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. 
And be sure to join us next week. I will be in conversation with Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, who leads New York City's congregation Bet Torah Simchat, the largest LGBT synagogue in the world, and is a former member of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.